0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next two hours, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. It is week 22 for many of us still working from home. My co-host Jason Kelly off this week on vacation in his place. Great to have Bloomberg TV and radio anchor Alex Steele with me. And this, as we talked a lot about the virus this week. In fact, Bloomberg Business Week this week is a special vaccine issue, looking at the biggest challenges and promising solutions on the path to a COVID vaccine. It's a must read to understand the many headlines we get every day on the virus and how close we are to getting control of it and the many moving issues surrounding the virus.
2: What's radical about some of these vaccine approaches? Where's the manufacturing going to come from? And what are the political implications?
1: Also, where we are in the process, why Merck is pursuing a slow and steady approach, and vaccine nationalism, yes, it's a thing. That dominated our coverage this week. So, too, did this.
3: I have no doubt that I picked the right person to join me as the next vice president of the United States of America.
1: Joe Biden chose Kamala Harris as his running mate, Bloomberg News political contributor Jeannie Zeno on what a Biden-Harris ticket means come November. We begin this hour with the magazine's deep dive into the path to a COVID-19 vaccine. Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter Riley Griffin talked with us about the issue and coverage, as well as Riley's story and drug giant Merck taking its time to develop a vaccine, an approach that's paid off before
2: joel kicks it off there's got to no bigger story in the world right yeah. now and uh, that's saying' something considering you know we, we've seen social unrest we're about to see an election but uh, that that clearly um, a lot hinges on but you know I think we're, we've all been fixated on um, on everything around the vaccine to the point that you know we're, we're all becoming sort of better scientists in understanding Um, how even approaches to vaccines can work, let alone, you know, the trials that all of them entail. So we we figured let's like look at this on the biggest level that we can, but not just look at it in terms of like the companies and the horse races so much as all the other things that have to happen around a vaccine. It's like getting a vaccine is ultimately getting a formula, right? But you have to get uh, production, distribution. There's politics, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. So we've really devoted a lot of this issue to looking at all these facets, but let's not forget the foot race either, right? Thing thing that um, was really captivating about Merck in this context is a lot of the big vaccines that have come to civilization in the past decades have, have actually come from Merck. And while other approaches are racing, like you said, Carol, to get this thing done quickly, Merck is saying, you, you know, we're not gonna be the first out of the gate, but we are we know what we're doing when it comes to vaccines. Uh, and, and that's what uh, Riley was able to write about. Um, and Riley, talk to us more about what Merck, why Merck sets the bar where it sets it when it comes to vaccine development.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love to take you back a few months actually to the final weeks of May when Merck first announced they would be pursuing two coronavirus vaccines and an antiviral treatment. To be frank, The news came rather late at the time. The coronavirus had already swept the U.S., and within days of that announcement, we marked more than 100,000 deaths in this country. Um, At the time, though, we were thinking through Merck, which has more than 100 years dominating the vaccine space. It had to have something brewing. In fact, I had um, spoken with the director of the National Institutes of Health at the time, Francis Collins, who had said to me, don't count Merck out quite yet. And I think you'll find that those who know the vaccine world well always hold that opinion. Don't count Merck out, because though they might take a more conservative approach to vaccine development, they have quite the track record, as you mentioned. And to talk about that track record briefly, I mean, Merck is responsible for the first U.S. inoculations for chickenpox, rubella, measles, and mumps. In fact, that mumps vaccine is the quickest to go through the development to market in a matter of four years. Nobody has since beaten that record. Most American kids now get Merck-produced vaccines for all four of those things. And to top it off, the company has pioneered vaccines for HPV and just this past December, Ebola. And that was the first vaccine ever approved for that virus. So they have skin in the game. They know how to do this work. And even though there are more than 160 vaccines in various stages of development for the coronavirus, 26 of those which have entered human trials, Merck is coming later, but you've got to watch Merck closely because they know what they're doing.
5: So when we talk about, like, a slow roll of slow rolling vaccines, like, what, what, what does that mean? Do they just, like, do more testing? Is it more trials?
4: Yeah, so we've spoken with top researchers and executives at the company, and their goal right now is to have global impact. So they, they started their development process later, but they're taking a threefold approach. They want to have a shot that's effective in a single dose, That's notable because some of the front runners that we see today, they take a two-dose approach, a a vaccine plus a booster. They also want to make sure it can be easily distributed around the world. And last, they want to rely on tried and true technology. So they're employing this kind of old-school approach that they have for decades, um, now augmented with genetic engineering to add COVID-specific proteins or RNA. They've settled on these two candidates, one based on their Ebola vaccine and the other based on an existing measles vaccine. So to put that in perspective in terms of timeline, the measles vaccine is going to launch into human trials later this month. The Ebola trial, meanwhile, will kickstart in the fall. And again, the fall is when we're hearing some companies say they're going to seek an emergency use authorization. So Merck is just starting some of their human trials at that point in time. One executive speaking in a congressional hearing said we shouldn't expect them to come to market with a vaccine until 2021 at the earliest. But their goal here isn't to be first, it's to
1: be best. And that story by Riley Griffin and Robert Langworth includes Merck's CEO noting that those who suggest that any vaccine candidate might be broadly available before the end of the year is doing the public a disservice. A reality check, you might say. Coming up, Business Week Economics editor Peter Coy goes all weird science on us as he looks into what it will take to beat the virus. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week, a special vaccine issue, and we are highlighting some of the stories in Bloomberg Business Week magazine as it looks at the biggest challenges, the promising solutions, and really the weirdest science from the molecular level on up. We go really, really deep when it comes to the path to a COVID-19 vaccine, as does Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy. He makes us all so much smarter. He writes about where we are in the process to a vaccine. Business Week editor Joel Weber joining us once again as well.
2: Obviously, we have many, many different attempts underway here. and it's all an attempt to really just have something that sticks because the especially in the US, we have utterly failed at containing this thing, and a vaccine is really starting to to basically be the only way out of this madness. Uh, so Peter, you talked to many, many, many people um, for this article. And, and I'm just curious, like what were the what were the things that really stood out t- to you? when you spoke to people who who work on vaccines for a living?
6: Just
7: the creativity that's going on now. Vaccines have been around for centuries, really, uh, going back to the cowpox vaccine that stopped smallpox. And yet in the last few decades, thanks to biotechnology, genetical engineering, there's just a profusion of new concepts, entirely different ways of producing a vaccine. and One of them I think is so cool, you actually take some of the nucleic acid uh, that produces the, the, uh, back, the, the virus when it reproduces itself and you put that into the human body. The human body produces a portion of the vaccine, just some of the proteins, which is not harmful, but does stimulate the immune system. So the body becomes the factory for making the vaccine.
5: I, I, I want to know the question that I can ask Peter Coy that he won't know the
1: answer to. Uh-oh. <laughs> to your point, No, no, no. I
5: don't have it. I never have it.
1: He uh, always so, knows the answer.
5: Right? Uh, so, Peter, I guess when we try and look at the vaccine through then the economic lens and through the market lens, like, what's the reality of when an, an, a company says, hey, this vaccine works in phase three, and then all of a sudden everyone's great and everyone's good and we can travel and life is normal again?
7: Well, today, I guess, if you believe what came out of Russia, we already have a vaccine. Uh, <laughs> well, it hasn't even started yeah. phase
5: three, so maybe we yeah. take a pause. <laughs> yeah,
7: exactly. So I think we're going to probably see more of these popping up in different countries around the world. saying, we got one, we got one, we got one. And we're just going to have to step back and say, is this trustworthy? Um, because you really want to see a vaccine go all the way through phase three for both efficacy and safety before you're going to want to, like, put it into yourself or your kids or your parents. And that's going to be months. That's going to be months, probably mid-20, either late this year or early next year. Now, the hope is that there are so many of them that even if no one of them is perfect, they'll collectively give us uh, the amount of protection we need to beat back this uh, pandemic.
2: You know, Peter, the part of this that I think, you know, goes to what you're saying, Alex, about, you know, a timeline and stuff is is that there's a cost associated with the pandemic. And obviously that is what's generating headline after headline every day. And it's also what's, you know, allowing um, scientists to sort of expedite some development. And, and, you know, Peter, you have a big number here, which uh, I think, what was it, 375... Billion, billion dollars. Billion yeah. dollars wow. for per every month. month. Right. That is just an insane amount. Of, so so when you think about the economic implications of this and why a vaccine is so relevant, can you kind of help, help make sense of that for us?
7: Yeah. So if you're thinking, why should we put money into this loony idea somebody's got? Um, the answer is you probably should, because even if there's only a small chance of it paying off, it's... It's enough to justify a fairly big expenditure. And the same thing goes for manufacturing. Why would I ever build a factory to make a vaccine if we don't even know if it's going to work? Well, because if it does work, you don't want to be having to wait around while the factory gets built. You want to be able to go into production right away. And this whole attitude, I don't think there's quite enough of it. I think the scientists understand it. I don't think funders have fully grasped it. There is some pretty generous funding, but we could afford to be doing even more and it's unleashed just a as i said before a profusion of creativity which is, this makes this sort of a golden age for vaccinologists
2: so for everything that we've gotten wrong here in the us peter it, perhaps the strategy of of actually throwing billions of dollars around at, at or millions of dollars at various companies is maybe the right way
7: yeah it actually it is billions uh, uh, it, it is it is exactly the right thing to be doing so that's one case where um, I mean, as I said in the article, someday uh, when there is a vaccine or actually probably multiple vaccines, assuming that they actually do what they're supposed to do, we're going to look back on this as these these scientists all over the world from India to China to the U.S. to Germany, we're going to thank them. We're going to thank them for essentially saving our society and be a happy day.
1: Well, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I mean, you do point Uh-oh. out, and the well, magazine, <laughs> <in> the <laughs> magazine has talked about this before, that we still don't have a vaccine against HIV. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. and this is a complicated virus that impacts people differently.
7: That is so true. All right, so I guess you did kind of bring down the optimism I was trying to <laughs> in- inject into the conversation. Just thirty but, yeah.
1: seconds to, to react to that uh, Debbie that Downerness.
7: Very. <laughs> true. We still don't have an HIV vaccine. There's several other um, viral diseases for which there are no vaccines. Uh, This one is looking, though, as if it does seem amenable to a vaccine. And uh, in fact, again, multiple vaccines using different avenues. So something's probably going to work, maybe not as well as, say, a smallpox vaccine, maybe more like the influenza vaccine. But it will have something probably within a
8: year.
1: And as Peter mentions, of course, we're hoping to have some kind of vaccine, hopefully, by the end of the year. Many of the guests that we talk to on our daily radio show, we get all kinds of scenarios. Some are optimistic, like Peter and his reporting, in that we will have something by the end of 2020. A lot of others say, though, it's more like a 2021 story. And keep in mind that experts warn, as Peter reminds in his story, that the new vaccines may provide only some protection and only temporarily, more like the annual flu vaccine that we get rather than a knockout vaccine that we have for polio and measles. So something to keep in mind. Also, as Peter noted, there's still no vaccine against HIV. So getting a vaccine for COVID-19, it's not an easy path, as we all know. That, of course, was Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, also Business Week economics editor Peter Coy. Highly recommend you check out Peter's story. As I mentioned, we all get smarter when Peter stops by. Coming up next. What
2: we're seeing is countries really having this in general just this resurgence of nationalism
1: we talk about vaccine nationalism yes it's a thing and it is making this deadly disease even worse you're listening to bloomberg business week and this is bloomberg
0: this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly From Bloomberg Radio.
1: Our special issue of the magazine continues. We're looking at the path to a vaccine, a COVID-19 vaccine. Something we covered throughout the week on our daily radio show. These stories important, even as news about the virus continued to cross the Bloomberg and evolve. And that included a story about another disturbing aspect of COVID-19, and that is vaccine nationalism. Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations Reporter Vernon Silver joined us from one of the hotspots when it came to the virus. We're talking about Italy, Rome's specifically. And he talked with us about how the race for a vaccine has resulted in the jockeying of governments to secure doses of promising candidates for their citizens. He joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Jill
2: Weber. What we're seeing is countries really having this, in general, just this resurgence of nationalism. And that's now manifesting itself um, around how they're approaching the vaccine. And as countries are digging their heels in to sort of do everything by themselves. It, it actually makes the whole situation worse because through collaboration we might have uh, been able to pool resources and maybe maybe reach um, a cure or a vaccine quicker than we otherwise might and benefit more people And what I think Vernon really found that was so interesting was being in Rome you know which was one of the first places affected by the pandemic uh, it really felt like, Italy was at sort of the forefront of, of this conversation. So, so Vernon, what was the Italian perspective on all of this? I mean, what what we did was started following the vials, literally, of how
9: the vaccine were, were being produced. And the first strand came in just 10 little vials that were sent from Oxford uh, to Rome to this company that was going to make over 10,000 doses for the trials, the, the very first large-scale trials of, of a vaccine in the world. Um, and by happenstance, um, the you know the initial supply of that vaccine was within the borders of of Italy and the politicians here latched onto it and it kind of it kind of steamed you know it, it was a snowball where you had more deals being made and more kind of nationalist rhetoric coming out of the mouths of, of the leaders here uh, who needed a redemption from having been the worst hit at the outset. Um, and the the end result is that we've got, about a you know a quarter of the supply of the AstraZeneca Oxford uh, vaccine now being uh, bottled within Italy's borders. And how it plays out in the end is one of the, the questions that, that's been left open as they balance, you know, let's all cooperate with, well, we do have it here.
5: Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that part up because I was wondering what the nationalism part means. Does it mean that you've provide the money to the company to make the vaccine that you then buy all the vaccine does it have to be a local company that's making the vaccine or is it the distribution like the vials and the manufacturing part like there are lots of different angles to it
9: yeah and the best way to understand it is it breaks down into two areas the, the bad actors and the bad planners and the bad actors are you know the accusations against the Chinese and Russian governments that they've been hacking the western efforts the bad actors are we already saw it in march when protective equipment was being blocked by different countries 90 different countries blocked equipment that would have been of use uh, during the pandemic those are the those are the bad actors and we kind of know about those so then the bad planners is sort of just the splintering of where you know are you going to throw a lot of money at it you know the trump administration is throwing 10 billion dollars at this operation warp speed that sucks up supply poorer countries then you know are trying to pull money to buy their own supplies that drives up prices and these companies that are trying to you know Save the you know save the world and also make some money are trying to find solutions, and AstraZeneca was a great example because they've decided they need to fight the nationalism by creating these supply chains on four different continents. If everyone's going to fight over it, give everyone their own darn supply chain. So Russia has a supply chain of the Oxford vaccine, and Brazil will have one, and there's the one in Italy, and there's a billion doses being made in India
1: okay best laid plans right we create vaccine or vaccines and the world has equal access to it and then there's reality is there vernon the possibility the likelihood that we're going to see people ordering the vaccine but then there's going to be countries who are not going to let it cross their borders
8: yeah absolutely
9: that's what that's what the companies are planning for that's what the governments are planning for that's why you, you try to get a clear idea of how these these orders are who go who goes first you know in the uk said you know it's been developed at oxford we're going to get the first doses for our people. How does that play out in the end? And that's that's sort of what we're looking at next: is that borders have become the battle lines in in this nationalism of of the vaccines.
1: That's Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News P and I reporter Vernon Silver. What Vernon had to say about borders becoming battle lines. It's a reminder that this really is a war, a fight against the virus, and some troubling and disturbing aspects uh, as concerns about access to a vaccine are something we might have to deal with in the future. One more note I want to point out in Vernon's story that AstraZeneca has committed to creating autonomous supply chains for the Oxford shop that it is working on on four continents. It's a frank acknowledgement that it isn't counting on a normal flow of goods and really looking to create independent supply chains that will enable full access to the vaccine around the world. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still to come, the head of the largest health care provider in New York State on getting through the crisis and making sense of the nonstop news of COVID-19. Northwell Health's President and CEO, Michael Dowling, is straight ahead. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. My co-host Jason Kelly is off. Joining me this week, Bloomberg television and radio anchor Alex Steele. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week as the world continues to deal with the problems and inequalities revealed anew.
8: We don't want a handout. We do want a handout.
1: Salman Ali, head of the advisory firm, bearing his name on why black wealth matters. Food insecurity is on the rise. The CEO of Feeding America on the country's growing hunger crisis. Plus, Roan's CEO and co-founder Nate Shekitz on how digital main streets are evolving amid our new world order. We begin with the top story this week. Democratic President nominee Joe Biden choosing California Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate, Bloomberg News political contributor and professor of political science at Iona College Jeannie Zeno has more on the reality of a running mate on election outcomes.
10: These picks don't tend to change a lot of votes, but what they do is they really give voters a sense as to the decision making of the person at the top of the ticket. And I think in that respect, Joe Biden has done himself a favor here. He made a sober pick after a, a very intensive screening process. And I think he has now made it very difficult for the president's team to attack somebody like Kamala Harris in the way that they want to. Um, we were just looking at some of the attack videos that have come out from the Trump campaign on Harris, and they try to paint her as being far left and of course, that doesn't fit very nicely for somebody like a Kamala Harris. So I think he's made it tough for them to attack her. But I think more important than that, he has sort of done what he promised to do, which is pick somebody who is prepared to govern if needed at, at at a moment's notice, who would do no harm to the ticket because he is leading in, in many of the swing states at this point, and whom he personally uh, has a relationship with that goes back many years, and of course, given his age, somebody who brings in a new generation at 55. Um, Kamala Harris obviously um, is you know uh, several you know decades younger than Joe Biden and, and you know one of the things he would like to do is bring in some younger voters so from those perspectives I think it was a strong pick on his part
5: so do we I mean are we going to be looking at 2024 Kamala Harris on the top of the ticket in the Democratic Party and I'm just wondering how Wall Street thinks about that I, I
10: do think it's possible. You know, Joe Biden at one point indicated he is a one term president should he win. Then he later pulled back on that and talks about himself more as a transitional person, transitional candidate. So I think there are many people who suspect he may do one term if he does win, which would mean Kamala Harris would be at the top of the ticket. Um, and I do think there are questions about what, uh, you know, what Wall Street, for instance, is going to think about a pick like Kamala Harris. We, you know, when we think about her relationship with Joe Biden, a lot of that was built on her relationship with his late son, Bo Biden. And what they did together was really take on the big banks in the wake of the housing crisis. And she talked about that in her book. Um, and so not only the story of her relationship with Bo Biden uh, as attorney general, but also the work she did in terms of challenging the big banks. I think that Wall Street is going to have a lot to say about that. I think also she is somebody who has done particularly well fundraising on behalf of the president and who has a record in the Senate. Um, so there is a lot to chew on when it comes to Kamala Harris. And she also is somebody who has flipped on a few issues that are key to people, including the issue of health care, which made her, you know, really was a challenge for her during her campaign. So there's a lot to look at in terms of her record as both a prosecutor, an attorney general, and also in the Senate and as a candidate herself for president.
1: Jeannie, what about the Trump campaign? Do we anticipate, I know that there was some talk at one point that maybe, you know, Mike Pence wouldn't be on his ticket. Should we assume that he will be or does You know, Biden's pick maybe, maybe push the Trump campaign to reconsider having a different running mate. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. I
10: think we thought, you know, initially that maybe he would move away from Mike Pence. I think it is becoming very late to imagine that he does that at this point. So I think he's going to stick with Mike Pence. But to your point, you know, there is quite a difference between a Kamala Harris and a Mike Pence, both substantively in terms of their policy perspective. I just want to see the debate.
1: Yeah, the, debate, the
10: debate, I mean, that's exactly, I mean, it's so fascinating. They're just two people who are from com- completely different, you know, areas. And so that's going to be fascinating. But I think it's too late for Trump to move to somebody else at this point. You never say never with Trump, but.
5: Well, I don't, don't really want to see the debate. I want to see Stephen Colbert's monologue about the debate. Uh, more Good to the point. point. Um, so uh, I guess I guess, my question, we were trying to get at this earlier, too, is that if I'm a voter, And I voted for Trump last time and I'm considering voting for Biden this time. Does this mean anything for me?
10: I, you know, I am of the old school that I, I don't think you we see historically a lot of movement among voters because of a vice presidential pick. Now she is, the, you know, we have to say she is, you know, the fourth woman historically uh, on this kind of ticket. She would be the first vice president female, obviously vice president if elected, the first African American, the first, um, you know, of, of, of Asian descent. Um, so there, she does, you know, hit a lot of those firsts that maybe would make her attractive to people to move to her, but we don't usually see that. Usually people judge the ticket on the top of the ticket, and that's still going to be Biden versus Trump. So I think she helps people give him a second look if they're not quite certain, but I'm not sure they move over because of her.
1: I do feel like, Jeannie, too, it's a political campaign listening to what's going on among the broader public.
10: That's a good point. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for that reason, she, you know, really does fit some of the time here. But again, I'm not certain that that makes people in terms of voting say, oh, I did vote for Trump, but now I'm over to Biden's corner. I I don't see that. I think if anything, it would be something like his handling of, say, the pandemic that would get independence, say, in a Michigan or a Wisconsin, maybe to give Biden a second look.
1: That's Bloomberg News political contributor and professor of political science at Iona College, Jeannie Zeno, reminding us that The running mate may be not so important to voters come November. It's more about the issues. But keep in mind, Biden's choice of a running mate, another step toward more representation of women in politics. Coming up next, upping the representation of blacks when it comes to wealth creation. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek, and this is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week, a special COVID-19 vaccine issue. And one thing that came up during one of our daily radio conversations between Alex Steele and myself was a reminder of the inequalities that we saw once again because of the virus. With minority communities being hit the hardest, it was a reminder, too, of how minorities and blacks in particular have been left behind when it comes to wealth creation. In an environment where not a single CEO of a major U.S. bank is black Solomon Ali, who heads his own advisory firm, is taking steps to reverse inequalities and create black wealth.
8: Access to capital for minorities, so people that look like me, is systemic. Um, it's been allowed for a very long time, and when you block us out or deny us access to capital, it just makes it a little bit more difficult. When you look at from the other side, we are the largest consumers in the United States out of all the various um, nationalities. So we have a lot to contribute um, to business and we do a lot of the work, but unfortunately we're just not um, being given the opportunity to get capital. So one of the things that we try to do is demystify um, access to capital and what that actually means and what it looks like and how to actually get it for people of color.
5: So what's the transmission mechanism that's broken that's preventing that from happening right now? Basically, the hole you're trying to fix.
8: Well, the hole we're trying to fix is very simple. We have a lot of legislation that's been done um, many years ago before you and I, um, and we weren't included. People who look like me weren't included. And when they began to try to include us, they had people who were making policies that were... I will use the words not sensitive to who we were and what our needs were because they didn't want us to live next door to them. They didn't want us to have access to capital because they felt like we would be competing for the same capital that they were trying to achieve. That's why you have approximately 13,000 publicly traded companies and you have fewer than 15 black-owned managed um, publicly traded companies. And you would say, well, how could that even be in today's age,
1: 2020? Well, so talk to us a little bit about that and what's happened and why it hasn't opened up more. Well, it hasn't opened up
8: more because they don't want it to open up. Now, who they are is very simple. The establishment has set a set of rules together. It's not the bank's fault. It's not even current policymakers' fault. But at some point, these rules have to be revisited, that they are actually inclusive, um, so that we include it. Because if you want um, minorities to have access to capital, um, you can get minorities to have access to capital by um, regulating. Um, Very simple. You know, you give us, we don't want a handout. We do want to hand up. So if you could just simply imagine um, helping someone up to create jobs. According to the U.S. government, most jobs are created by people who look like themselves. Mm-hmm. So if I'm an employer, I'm hiring someone that looks like me, and that's why unemployment amongst blacks are so is so high, especially amongst black males
5: so i can totally see then uh how you're connecting all the dots right because if you don't have minority owned black owned businesses then you're not going to have the people who hire other people who look like them which then creates more wealth in the community Getting the government to do anything right now on this except for rhetoric, I just I can't imagine that's going to happen. So you're actually putting your money where your mouth is, and you're actually trying to help support that. What kind of concrete steps have you been able to take to help give access to capital um, to black-owned businesses?
8: Well, we put a group of um, various investors together, and we help to fund different deals and transactions. Recently, we helped to fund a lab out of Georgia, energy company, technology company. So we go through the whole gamut. We don't go looking to borrow money or anything of that nature. We use our own resources, and we rely on our own network um, to do this. And so what we look for is companies that have between three to $5 million that are very much overlooked and are poised to actually grow but they lack the capital and sometimes even the strategicness to actually develop and grow the company and take it to the next level. So we come in and we provide the capital and some strategic planning to help them to grow and scale their business.
5: Solomon, help me understand, though, how you get to that $3 million threshold. Like, what about the people under that? How do you help them?
8: Well, basically what we do is we help provide To provide a strategic planning for their mergers, acquisitions, and just strategies on how to grow and scale their companies. And then we work with a group of investors um, that will loan them money and things of that nature. I've been doing this for about 30-something years, um, being an entrepreneur and accessing finance. So, again, we just try to demystify what that actually looks like, and bring companies in, minority companies, people that look like me, and just help them to by strategic planning and by getting them access to capital and arranging for funding so that they can grow. And normally what that will allow them to do, it helps to provide them with the working tools that they need for that strategic planning for an exit strategy out. Because as we know before, the largest investment that most Americans had, especially African Americans, was their homes. Hmm. And now that we have even less home ownership than we did previously, the largest investment that they have is their savings. And African Americans are saving far less than their counterparts of whites and things of that nature. So we have less disposable income, we have less income. And so trying to teach them one business at a time how to make the shift and redirect some of their resources into their business so that they can also hire people that look like them.
1: That's Solomon Ali, head of Solomon R.C. Ali Corporation. And as he told us, blacks don't want to hand out. They want to hand up. And that requires many, including the federal government, realizing it's been unjust. He kept reminding us, too, that you know, blacks, they are a huge consumer community in the U.S. They have a lot to contribute, and they're a group that really need to have more recognition. Check out that full conversation. It's on our podcast feed. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek coming up. Yep. Things don't change. We're on a trajectory to see food insecurity rates in the country go all the way up to 54 million people. Feeding America is out with a new report on hunger in the United States, and it's not good. We'll hear from CEO Claire Babineau-Fontenot. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Nearly 30 million in the U.S. recently reported to the Census Bureau that they did not have enough to eat. And according to Feeding America, child hunger is at an all-time high due to COVID-19 and rising unemployment. Feeding America goes on to predict that over the next few months, 18 million children could be food insecure. Long-term harm results when kids do not have enough to eat? Well, that includes adverse educational health and economic outcomes. Feeding America CEO Claire babineau Fontenot talked with us and gave us the startling statistics and situation of so many.
6: If things don't change, we're on a trajectory to see food insecurity rates in the country go all the way up to 54 million people. Um, beneath that huge number is that there are certain uniquely vulnerable communities who are being really, really hard hit right now um, by this food crisis that's come along with the health crisis that we're all uh, having to deal with. So how do you deal with it? Well, uh, they say, how do you eat an elephant? Got to be one bite at a time, right? So um, we're doing lots of things as a network I'm really proud of, of our members who are out there on the front lines making certain that even at the risk to their own safety, uh, and we've put in place some precautions to try to make it safer, but the reality is that there are risks associated with the work that they do. They get out there consistently and provide this food to people when they need it. The reality, though, is that this has to be an all-in fight. So we've done some, some recent, uh, a recent study with McKinsey. Even with all of the interventions that have already happened, there has been some good news in terms of bipartisan support for some assistance to our network. We've put that in play, factored it into this number. We still have a gap over the next 12 months that we're estimating, unless something serious changes. It's going to be an 8 billion meal gap for people. side of that, I mean, there's almost 20
1: million children
6: are yeah. caught up inside of that gap. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. I have
1: to say, like, it just, it gets me so upset because here we are, you know, a very rich nation. We've all seen the stories during the pandemic of milk being, you know, spilled out. And I understood why there weren't workers necessarily, you know, um, or there was just overproduction. Um, But it was just hard to get my head around that happening, wasting food, throwing it out, versus people not having meals to eat on a daily basis. How do we fix this, Claire? Yeah, so I think it's, there's more than one thing to do. So the first thing,
6: let's talk about that. which you just described. Um, one of the one of the good things uh, that probably frustrates all of us is that our issue in this country isn't that we don't have the wherewithal to produce enough food to feed our people. We just there's been a significant matching challenge, though. So. So part of what's happened, and you've seen fewer headlines around milk being wasted. One of the reasons why is because we have a long, deep relationship with farmers. And in in the immediate aftermath of the health pandemic, uh, there was a big, big mismatch. We've done a much better job of coming together and matching that food up with people who need it. But we're going to need policy changes. That's the bottom line. So. I, I'm, I hope that everyone within the sound of my voice were to reach out to their members of Congress and tell them get back at that bargaining table because there are some people who are in desperate need of help And Congress is uniquely positioned to help them.
1: If I could just tie up something, a conversation Alex and I had yesterday, and we talked about farm subsidies specifically. And we talked about, you know, money, tax money, various subsidies and programs that come through the the, the government's. Uh, federal and I guess other, you know, state maybe and local too, that support various industries. And are you talking about things like farm subsidies that, you know, we have government support and yet, you know, when we need people who need to be fed, you know, somehow that chain needs to be kind of completed? Yeah,
6: there, that's a part of it. So a part of it is certainly we do already have relationships with, with farmers. Mm-hmm. That includes some of the subsidies go toward food purchases that then go into the charitable food system Uh, and there are issues around making making that easier and we're going to continue to work with USDA and with farmers to try to make that easier but there's some other policy interventions that that really for me are no-brainers and in this climate where everything seems partisan this is something that shouldn't be and it's the federal nutrition program that includes initiative like SNAP. SNAP is formally referred to as food stamps. So we know for a fact that SNAP for every one meal that our remarkable network can provide, SNAP can provide nine. We know from the pre- from the previous recession that it's highly stimulative to the economy. If you provide someone who has such limited means with a resource that's only valuable to them if they use it, It's going to have a stimulative
1: impact. Providing resources. That's something we've heard from a lot of our guests here at Bloomberg Business Week and how that really impacts their life in so many different ways and something that ultimately is important to the overall economy. That's Feeding America CEO Claire babineau Fontenot. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we check into consumer habits, how they are changing during the pandemic. We'll do that with Roan CEO and co-founder Nate Checkets. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio.
1: There have been lots of stories about what it means to dress for work today, especially with all of us working from home. You know, we've heard about the Zoom shirt. That's that shirt that's always hanging nearby on a hanger from where you're working at home, just in case a virtual meeting with your boss or perhaps a client comes up. There's also a lot of yoga wear and athleisure wear being worn at home, t-shirts, and you know, our next guest knows about all of this firsthand. He's a friend of the show. He's Roan CEO and co-founder Nate Shekitz, and he joined us to talk about how consumer habits are changing and what they are seeing in terms of trends, what people have been buying since they've been home. He began, though, with how his world has been upended, too, because of COVID-19.
3: Like everyone, this is uh, a roller coaster that feels like it's been um, two years uh, and and in some ways, it, you know, it, it feels short, and in some ways, it feels long. But, you know, when when the pandemic initially started, it was a very scary time for not just people with health, but you know, for us as as retailer and as a as a young, uh, growing brand in the consumer space, um, caused us to look at at just about everything. And certainly, you know, we've we've come a long way, and categorically, I think we're we're insulated in a lot of ways. But yeah, it's been. It's been quite the experience navigating this.
5: So so literally, like, what are people going to wear? I mean, I joked about D- David Weston. So he's an anchor here at Bloomberg Television. He covers politics. I mean, and he would wear a suit every day. Uh, and he used
1: to be head of ABC News. So we so very just kind of old laying it out for you. Way.
5: <laughs> um, And I say that with a lot of love. Yes. Like, he'd take his jacket off when he would get at his desk, and then he'd literally get up to go to the bathroom and he'd put his jacket on. Like, he's that kind of guy, and he's wearing <laughs> jeans to work. So, like, what's my new uniform?
3: Well, I, I think there's no way, you know, let's, let's say that we could snap our fingers and we were back at our, everybody was back at an office tomorrow. There's no way that the last few months won't impact wardrobes in the future, work attire, et cetera. You know, people are, this is a, this is a very long, sustained level of comfort and kind of wearing whatever you feel like we're wearing. And so you're going to see dress codes be relaxed uh, across the board um, and people are going to, there's going to be a continued push for comfortable work attire. And, you know, that's what Roan has always been about. Um, You know, not just making great stuff active for the gym, but making stuff that you can wear to and from work and, and look great. And so, you know, performance fabrics and uh, the, the work sweatpants, so to speak. But I, I do think that you're going to see some, yeah, some relaxation of dress standards, even for a guy like David.
1: I'm going to say, <laughs> we're going to actually mention it to David. I've got to say. I like, to hate
5: this conversation.
1: <laughs> well, and I, I mentioned I've been living in jeans and yoga gear and a few roan items as well, because they are incredibly comfortable. I want to also, though, ask you, because I want to get into um, maybe any of the pivots that you've done. But one thing that you have done mm-hmm. is, and forgive me if I, I don't say it correctly, is it Brands Times Better?
3: Yeah, Brands for Better.
1: Yeah. yeah tell us a little bit about this movement
3: well so you know in the early stages i was i was looking around and uh it really started with the fact that i sat my three boys down in a room and i said all right we get to spend this amazing time together it could be a couple of weeks it could be uh you know even as much as a month and uh, of course i was dead wrong on my mm-hmm. long-term estimates but is there something that you guys I want you to pick a skill that you want to learn and we're going to go and learn it together. And ultimately we landed on skateboarding. I had never really learned how to skateboard. They wanted to learn how to skateboard. Um, And so I went and I looked and I I tried to find, you know, a skateboard brand that was part of this kind of new digitally native movement. Um, I, I did not want to go to Amazon and just buy something because you had heard that all of online transactions were shifting Towards Amazon, Walmart, and these big players of what I call lowest common denominator shopping platforms. And this new digital Main Street that had been built up uh, because regular Main Street and retail Main Street had really been killed off, but the digital Main Street that had evolved with these amazing brands um, were being challenged in a very real way. And so I wanted to go and find the skateboard brand. And I, I searched for like 30, 45 minutes online and I I couldn't find one. And, um, but what I did see in that process of looking at all of my peers in this digital main street is everybody across the board was doing what they could to contribute, um, positively to, to, you know, to fight this pandemic, whether it was encouraging employees and their team and their retail teams to, to be safe, um, You know, some were shifting their supply chains to make masks. Many were giving a percent of their sales to um, to nonprofits, even as their sales were declining. And I thought, you know, it would be great to stand in solidarity um, with a lot of these brands. And so I just started reaching out to to friends in the space and we accumulated over 150 brands, digitally native brands, and everybody agreed to donate Um, two plus percent of their sales or 10 plus percent of their proceeds to a nonprofit fighting the pandemic. And um, over the course of two months, we raised, uh, you know, three and a half million dollars to to fight and, uh, you know, to contribute to PPE. And um, it also gave consumers a choice because we said, you know, we're brands that stand for treating our employees better, Stanford treating our um, supply chains well and we will always try and do what's right first, you know, above and beyond simply trying to turn a profit. And uh, and it was a great a great initiative and we had a, a great experience in building it.
5: Well I I'm interested that you said that because I, I wonder also how much are you thinking differently about all of that now? Like you had the relief effort, you have over 140 brands who all helped raise uh, that money. But as a company, are you also rethinking how you do stuff, either sustainably or how you deal with workers or any kind of work-life balance that exists in any part of the world? Like, does, does did COVID make you rethink any of those things?
3: I think it's made us, I think it's made us at the very least examine everything. Um, and, you know, in particular, I will say, you know, we have a very flexible PTO policy relative to most of corporate America in the fact that we don't have a formal, um, you know, vacation days. You, if you join our company tomorrow, we don't say, all right, it's your first year, you get 10 vacation days. It's, you know, it is unlimited PTO as we, as we describe it. Um, and it's actually worked very well for us. But You know, part of the challenge that has come with that, and especially in this consistently connected environment, people are not taking enough time off where they're just, you know, eliminating screens and walking away. And so we've had times where we are forcing screen breaks. Um, And uh, and you know, there's you know, there's been there's certainly been ways where we're thinking about what does collaboration look like when we come back? Is it is it a five day work week in the office? Um, And there's You know, again, forever is a very long time. So when I hear people say that the you know we're never ever going back to an office, well, forever is a very long time. But I do think the workplace will be uh, changed for uh, for a considerably long time. In the coming years, I did
1: want to ask you that, Nate, because it's interesting. We had a CEO on last week who's who's a diehard New Yorker, uh, lived there, worked there, offices, um, has created like you, has a great heart, and you know, giving back to the community and basically said we're done we're done with new york and we've been working so well and he's got a company that can work really well virtually and and so on and so forth but he said we're done with new york but you don't and and i think you make a really good point i think right now it's easy for us all to say we're done but but long (laughs) forever is a long time
3: yeah i mean look you know the going back and looking at the the 1918 spanish flu and the you know, the, the roaring twenties that followed it, you know, it's, it's certainly easy to, to think that this is, you know, that this is going to be a forever impact, but there's, there is, there is an impact and we have to acknowledge that Um, I will never be done with New York. Um, We love, we love the city. And and I think it's going to take, I think New York's going to come back better and stronger. And, um, but you know, when it comes to being in the office, at least as, as far as i can see for the next 2 years we will not have 5 day a week office days i can i can envision yeah. a scenario where it goes down even to 2 off- office day a week and the rest because our team is so effective
1: CEO and co-founder Nate Checkets. And check out that full conversation in case you missed any of it. That is on our podcast feed. Gotta say, I love what he's doing. I love what he's doing when it comes to brands for better, which is a new movement in how brands are more thoughtful in their treatment of customers, teams, and suppliers. So if you go to their website, he's really put together these like-minded brands and they've gotten together and they're actually giving back to those affected by COVID-19. You heard Nate talk about it, but it's really a great movement. All right, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can get the full conversations such as the ones we had with Northwell Health CEO Michael Dowling and also Feeding America CEO Claire Babineau Fontenot. And be sure to check out our extra podcast for full interviews you will not hear anywhere else. And this week, it's Kiss We President. President and CEO Mike Schabel on helping ESPN, the PGA, and the NBA and many more create inclusive fan experiences through streaming and the cloud.
8: We just always thought that, gosh, there's a lot of people at home, they watch this content all the time, they're getting, you know, the younger people are mostly on a digital-based platform. They want experiences. They don't want to just lean back and watch. They want to get in. They want to participate. They want to be with each other. Our company has been
3: just focused on creating the platforms that enable that.
1: Hear that conversation wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine that is on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.